Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Andrea Hamilton is the BAFTA award-winning Managing Director of Modest TV. She spent a career commissioning, developing and producing some of Britain's best-loved entertainment and factual entertainment TV. She has been executive producer of Strictly Come Dancing, Strictly Christmas, The People's Strictly and So You Think You Can Dance. She's created and produced the BBC One hit series Little Mix The Search, been series editor of The Voice and creative consultant on Tumble and the Gary Barlow project Let It Shine. Prior to immersing herself in the best of the BBC's entertainment, she was the commissioning editor for entertainment and features at Sky One. So what is the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Andrea Hamilton, good afternoon. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, delighted to have you as my guest here on the Astrology Podcast this afternoon, and uh, really looking forward to finding out as to just how about uh, how you go about a career in TV and uh, all that that would entail. But before we, uh, as is always the case with the the Astrology Podcast, before we go into that kind of detail, I'm keen to start from the early years, if you like. So, so tell us, where did you grow up? What was what was childhood like for you? What was what was home life like for you? Um, so childhood was growing up in quite a nice suburban setting. So it was a, a village outside Woking and um, it was very much the 70s parenting model. So off you went for the day, you know, and informed them that you might be back at tea, you might not, uh, from quite young. I mean, you know, I, I, and I, I sort of remember being about eight and walking what I realise now is about two miles, which I'd never let my daughter do. And sort of coming up to a riding school and calling this woman over, booking myself riding lessons um, for £1.25 an hour. Those were the days. eh? And walking back and informing my mum that's what I had done. And from that day onwards, I was sort of this mad horse rider. And so I was probably eight to 18. I was just, that's what I would do. And I'd dad would drop me off at age 10 around at the horses, you know, at half past six in the morning. And you'd muck out and get one point. Once you had 10 points, you could uh, get a free half hour ride. <laughs> that was sort of, you know, that was, I suppose, how I spent it. So and it, was, it was nice. It was, you know, living near sort of nature and woods. And I had a best friend that's still 40, whatever it is now, 44 years on, is still one of my absolute best friends. And we were together all the time. So, um, yeah, it was a pretty enjoyable childhood. Fantastic. And who were the posters on the wall? Posts on the wall were Wham!, Spandau Ballet. Uh, this how, is this how you suss out people's age? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite, but your, your <laughs> wall would have been slightly different to mine, but we are very much of the similar era. Yeah, that same kind of era. Ilk. Yes, yeah, yeah. So um, ABBA in the very early days when I was about six. And then, you know, ponies. Um, yeah. So at what point did you first decide that the possibility of pursuing a TV career would be something that you would entertain? So um, it was quite late. Uh, my degree was sort of business studies and actually public relations and journalism was what I thought I was going to want to go into when you're sort of not really sure what you want to do at 18, 17 and you're deciding on your degree course. 
And I did that course and it had lots of, it was at Bournemouth, and it was lots of sort of business modules, basically. So you did law, you did international journalism, you did, you know, IT, lots of sort of different business studies modules just with the, um, the one that you were sort of majoring in. And it wasn't, I went away traveling almost immediately after that four year degree because it included a year's in the workplace. And while I was traveling, I thought, I don't want to work in public relations or journalism. And I just had this sense that what I should be doing is television production. That's a really weird thing. And I can't sort of tell you where it came from. It was a real sort of instinctual. That's what I meant to be doing. That's more tangible. And I had this feeling that the sense of, of what I was about to go into potentially as you know, at the start of my career was um, not tangible enough. The only way I could describe it, it was too much making something out of nothing, having to fill pages, having to pretend that a product was more unique or innovative last week than it was this week. And I suddenly felt like it wasn't going to be tangible enough. So there's been a leap, I know, to then saying, well, you know, you're going into television production. Had you had had any kind of influential figures around that, with that sort of TV experience that you tapped into and you'd gotten to a sense of what that could look like? No, my father was a critic and was was in finance. And uh, my mum was an HR director eventually, but I'm not sure she was at that time. And she was sort of encouraging me in HR. And I thought, oh, no, I don't want to do that. That's not quite creative enough for me. So I think I just sort of grabbed at the first thing that, you know, I was the first person in my immediate family to go to university. So um, I, you know, there, was, there wasn't any real, uh, it's an odd thing. I can't quite actually put my finger on what it was that made me think television production is what I'm supposed to be doing. But that's what I've had this very strong feeling about. So, um, yeah, but I, I can't tell you, oh, it came from uh, something that somebody said or it was just while I was traveling in Australia, I thought I'm not meant to be doing what I've trained to do. I'm meant to be doing television production. Strange, isn't it? So when I got back, the first thing I did was probably wrote to, oh, I moved to London and wrote to, I don't know, 150 companies, you know, just, just doing desperate to get in as a sort of runner or production assistant you know that's that's the very much the le- entry level in television is a runner so I wrote to so many places and uh, I got offered two to manage to actually get an interview and got offered a job at a um, post-production company that were making sort of food shows with, with Joan Collins randomly and uh, and also an MTV job and I really wanted the MTV job but the salary was so low I think it was 5,000 per year this is 1996 seven six and uh, I couldn't live at all, even with sort of a bit of parental help. I just couldn't live in London on £5,000 a year. I just couldn't pay the bills. So I ended up taking some other job and being in production and, and it started there. Any regrets? Do you, do you When you look back now, we'll come on to how the, the, your career has evolved. But if you look back now, you don't regret. Oh, what would have happened? How do I have taken that? I mean, particularly at that time, MTV would have been absolutely riding the crest of a wave right well yeah yeah totally and so um I sort of quite quite quickly at that point or it was at that point that I did think and then I went on to see in later years it's definitely a sort of I suppose to a certain degree people with privilege that can go into those very creative roles and you realize how when starting out if you've got parents that can bankroll you completely you can absolutely take the or yeah I suppose even parents that lived in London at the time would have been helpful so you could live at home but, you know, you can see how you can take those roles and take the really shiny jobs at those early days because, you know, your parents are bankrolling you. So you could, I could see how when you now look at our industry and there's a huge push now for diversity and that's in terms of heritage, um, socioeconomic and disability, but you can sort of see how 
you know, that sort of sort of private school element that people say exists very strongly in television got can can move through more easily maybe not maybe not so much now but I'd say definitely 25 years ago so yeah it would have been great to take that but I mean I did I did then sort of go back and I was pitching and and kind of connected with them in later years but yeah no no regrets no regrets and and in terms of that that first experience to which you refer I mean first well first and foremost the the journey to get you there the drive that's required to write 150 letters I would even have imagined maybe the majority of which might have been handwritten or maybe even on a word processor. But, you know, we live in a world today of immediacy of expectation. You know, we click, even if you look at the job application process, you click a link, you, you know, you click a button, it, it, you download a CV, off it goes. You know, the, the thought of hand, you know, sitting in your, you know, your desk in your bedroom at home or whatever, or at the kitchen table, writing 150 letters takes one, I think, to many perhaps of a certain generation less so, but to a younger generation, maybe in itself incomprehensible. But you must have had such a belief that this is what I'm going to, I'm cut out to do. What was it that drove you to, to say, to put pen to paper? I think, I think it's a sort of what I realised is, you know how sometimes you think, how have I done all right? You know, how have I done relatively well in my career? And what I've realised is it's a, there it is an absolute, it is a drive to, succeed or if I set my mind to something I'm going to achieve it and there is no way that I'm not going to find some way and I will find you know dip up and over rocks and round and you know do whatever I need to do be like water I guess to get to that point and I decided that if and I, I don't know what it was actually I can remember my mum won't thank me for this but um I do remember them you know referring to what I'd, I'd said previously about the fact that it seems to be a general sort of privileged sector that might move through to to get into those kinds of jobs definitely as I say 25 years ago and I can remember I'm saying you know you, we, we don't know anyone in this industry it's terribly difficult to get in I think she almost looked at it like being an actress and you know you'll you'll probably spend a lot of time out of work and how are you possibly going to get into this industry and I think I remember thinking just don't tell me that I, I can't do this. I know I can do this. I will do this. And I'll not necessarily I'll show you because I didn't feel the need to do that. But definitely, like there wasn't a chance that if I would decide, if it was not a chance, I would set my mind to something. It's not a chance that I'm not going to achieve it. There isn't, I don't allow in a way those doubts, not the doubts, but just the focus is clear. It's a bit Lin, uh, Linford Christie tunnel vision, I guess. But it comes back to what you said at the outset about as an eight year old girl you know, looking across a, a stable yard or whatever and yeah. saying, right, I'm going to get myself a horse riding lesson. <laughs> there, was, there was no question that that wasn't what you were going to do. And I suspect at the time it felt perfectly natural to, you know, to waltz up to somebody and say, right, you know, Friday, nine o'clock, I'll be here, whatever it might've been, you know? So that, it's that interesting around the whole nature nurture. And mm. is that something that's an inherent trait with which you were born and it's just naturally evolved or, you know, and for some people, I guess I speak with, there's a, a pivotal point that there's a shift in dynamic that forces them perhaps down a path. It sounds like from what you've describing, it was an always an, an inherent part of who you are. Yeah, I think my mum says, so she said, well, you see, you got to about six and you just sort of started bringing yourself up really, you know, as in I just was, this, I decided how it was going to be and I quite confidently marched out and, you know, made that happen, I guess, is, is what she's saying in that. So yeah, it was a, a just a, a, an absolute determination that I would, if I wanted that to work, it would work. And that first job to which you refer, making cookery programs with uh, with Joan Collins, my assumption would be, my guess would be that in, in that 
those early days in, in TV, you're literally making the tea. I mean, the, the, the job of the runner is, you know, you are whatever it is that is being asked of you to do, you go do. And is that, is that right? How, how does it work? Yeah, absolutely right. And in fact, mine, I thought I was sort of going to get lots of experience on shoots, but the production company I worked at didn't actually have that much going on. And one of the things they got me to do was actually, it's quite a salesy job of trying to sort of talk to salons and um, and see if they wanted videos made or, you know, corporate videos almost at one point. So it was, it ended up not being what I wanted it to be, but they also had a post-production facility next door. And yeah, you were literally dog's body, you know, run this tape, don't you run tapes anymore. At that time, it was run this tape from this side of town to that side of town, make the tea. Yeah, you know, and I remember getting told off that I didn't make the tea in quite the same way that the managing director wanted it made. So so it's um, that's definitely what is expected of runners. But the, actually, you know, I said to you, no regrets. There is something I just slightly regret. And I've just done a, a, a sort of session on this for people newly coming into television. But what I realised it's a really useful thing to do is to do your time at each level. And actually what I do wish I'd done is stayed a runner for longer and look to all lots of different parts of the business and tried out, you know, at that point at entry level, you probably could have a look at even, even, even different genres, you know, factual drama, entertainment, you know, whatever. I think I still would have ended up in entertainment, but certainly within, if you say, even just within entertainment, you can go in and you could have sort of had a bit of a look at the studio floor and, you know, so that side of it, do you want to be a production designer, design the set or be a camera person or a lighting person? Do you want to be a scriptwriter? Do you want to be a producer or a director? And actually what you realise Runner is, is a really good place to have a look at everything, a real sort of 360 degree look, because once you start going up the levels, it's quite hierarchical TV. Once you start going up the ladder, it's more difficult and people quite quickly pigeonhole you, you know, although I do it to people, you know, or oh, you're a casting AP or you do reality or reality casting person. Great. All the jobs you're going to get from now on are going to be that unless you say, no, I'm going to do this next. So I went up the scale really quickly in all my jobs. I really got promoted. I just went up the scale quickly. And actually, it's probably my major umbrella regret is that I just wish I'd actually done a little bit longer in each level and, you know, some people I know now are much smarter. They've got, you know, they're just smarter than we, the ones 15 years younger in a way. You know, so they've looked at what I guess we've done and they've looked and gone, right, well, I'm going to be a producer. I'm going to be a studio entertainment producer and sort of learn how to write a running order and a script for a show. I'm also going to be an edit producer and sit in an edit with an editor and put a story together on an, you know, edited. You know, I might try and sort of do some directing and be a producer director where you go out and shoot at producer level, whereas I took every time I was sort of given the leg up, which was quite quickly in different places, I took it. Whereas now I think I'd I'd do I'd get more under my belt at each level, and you catch up. But at certain levels, you can then feel you've probably got a little bit of a dearth of experience, or it just takes you longer to really get the three hundred and sixty. Whereas if you've been smarter about it and done, yeah, spent longer at each level, so so not jumped up as quickly, not taken the title and the money, but learn your craft more. Do, do you think though that, that that's interesting that again, broad sweeping statement for which I'm now going to apologize, but in your, in your twenties, oftentimes we're in such a hurry, aren't we? We, we mm. don't, we don't quite understand that we've got years to accumulate this experience and right. actually to get as much as we possibly can at a greater breadth rather than just simply accelerating the, the ladders is, is a wise thing to do, but we don't see it that way. With no. we're, we're in a, we're in a rush, right? We're in a rush. We're, we're ambitious. Rush. We're driven. We're hungry. 
if we don't get this done now, it's all going to be too late and we're doomed, you know? So I think there is that sense actually when we're younger that, that, that we don't have any time. Yeah, and I think it's even worse. I think this generation are worse. I think we're like called the instant grat generation, you know, YouTube, everything's yep. far, far. And I think, you know, especially when you look around, well, I suppose it started with, I think some of the reality TV started this off. So, you know, if you look back to sort of 20 years ago and people that were literally sort of one minute working in a call centre or whatever, next minute winning Big Brother and, you know, kind of instantly um, snapping up contracts worth millions or, you know, people that seemingly, I think 15, 20 years ago, weren't even necessarily that talented. And I guess that reality TV has got a lot to do with that. Accumulating a lot and achieving a lot, and certainly in terms of what the public would see, it was sort of fame, money, opportunity, very quickly, without much talent, because like I said, you could have last week been, you know, anything, and certainly not in that at that level, Um, with some of the reality, you know, 22-year-old reality contestants. And I feel like that, started the instant grat thing in a way and that looking around at people that were you know the Beckhams people well, they obviously had got, got talent but looking around at people that are very young with you know a lot a lot of talent fame money and I think it yeah definitely kick-started that I must achieve I must achieve thing I mean it might have been around my mom's generation but I, I think it got exacerbated by to a certain extent TV and the, well, the popular culture that was out there you know Heat magazine all those things that came out around that time around the time I started in TV making heroes of people that were, you know, just standing in front of a camera and reading a script, but suddenly they were fame, money, everyone was interested in them, you know. And I think that's put even more pressure on people. And I think that's passed down even further with sort of, you know, the YouTubers generating TikTok, where again, there's people like Charlie D'Amelio's and done a bit of a dance on TikTok and got 100 million followers, you know, it's incredible. And, you know, commanding fees of millions just to speak a brand's name, I imagine. And I think in a way that puts even more pressure on the people that are consuming that stuff 24-7 as well. You know, I see it in my own kids who are 11 and 13. And I think, yeah, that's... So I, I don't think it's going to get better, that need to quickly achieve, 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 you know. And I, and I don't quite know. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because everybody achieve to a level that is impressive, you know. So everyone, it, it's, that's it, isn't it? And I know there's a whole thing you know certainly about 10 years ago there's a lot of discussion in lots of different industries I know about a, a need for sort of people not wanting to do those though not wanting to do their time at each level you know not wanting to be the runner instantly wanting to be called the director because that's a snazzy sounding title and you know again I think it's become even more of a problem people doing their time at each level. Was there a, a sort of pivotal moment for you the sort of big break and if so what was it where did it come uh, how did it come about where did it come about? Uh, I suppose in television, big breaks to a certain extent are when you get onto something that's a brand and suddenly on your CV, people go, oh, she worked on that. You know, so for me, I suppose the first one I worked on this morning, which is when it was huge with Richard and Judy, was being watched by millions. And that was my first sort of job, I think, as a AP, where I was like, oh, this is a big, sort of, at the time, you know, it was a super brand. And then um, I worked on Big Brother. So again, I suppose it's that moment that you think, oh, I'm actually... You know, because initially I started on music shows and some of the smaller stuff. And then you're like, oh, I'm working on things that everybody's talking about and everybody knows. And then I think that there was, you know, probably from around 2009, 10, there was this sort of sudden super brand in TV, really, of which Strictly was one. So I suppose it was the point around 2011, 2012, I worked, I was executive producer of both Strictly Come Dancing and The Voice. Both of those were, you know, at the beginning of being global super brands, really. 
you know, sold to 60 countries and so everybody knowing about them, everybody talking about them, everybody interested in them. And I suppose it's that moment where you go, oh, right, this is something quite interesting because even my mum is proud of me, you know, my mother-in-law's sort of telling me you're proud of me, you know, because you're working on something like Strictly. So I suppose it's that that was a pivotal moment of realising that actually I've got to a point where this is sort of looking like success, I suppose. Do you think this morning was the break? Was that the point? If you think, you know, the, the sliding doors moment, if you like, a left or a right, you could have. And how did you get there? How did you arrive on the set this morning? To be honest, actually, it was probably much later. There was a real pivotal moment. It probably was at the point where I was called to be the executive producer of The Voice, actually, because that was just been a massive hit in America. It was about to be a needed to be a huge hit here. You know, everyone was talking about it. It was the first thing since The X Factor. And I think, you know, years that have become a big, global sensation so to be honest it's probably more the voice and strictly to got those calls around the same time so what's the career path to executive producer for those that don't work in tv perhaps who might even be considering a career in tv what's the route or the typical route perhaps yeah there is a typical route it's very it's very hierarchical and i tell you, i think the reason it's hierarchical is because it's freelance because it's a you know 80 percent freelance market you have got to be able to come in instantly pick up a job, pick up what that show is, know what the role of a researcher, AP, producer generally is with the parameters within, obviously it's different every show, but the parameters of that and crack on with it, you know, and just get on with it. And it might only be an eight-week contract. You've got beginning, middle and end and you've got to have made an entire show. So the route is very much runners, you know, so so we would, you know, I did a big thing called Little Mix of Search in the summer and um, the autumn. And, um, you know, we had 20 runners on that on studio day. So you've got 200 people in the studio on a day like that and 20 runners. There's amazing opportunities for people on those, if you want to get into entertainment, on those show days. And that's where I was saying to you before, you can get a look at the different areas, you know, within television. Everyone sort of thinks it's all about producing and directing. There's loads, there's a huge breadth of, of, of roles. But it there does then go quite hierarchical in terms of being runner, researcher, assistant producer, producer, series producer and that's quite a big jump that producer to series producer because that's suddenly when you've sort of got the whole production underneath you really then there can be a new sort of role that's somewhere between a series producer and an exec so it's called a series editor uh, and then then executive producer so and then offshoots probably by the time you get to executive producer level would be being a commissioning editor or then sort of running a production company being creative director or managing director of a production company so that's the that's the sort of production ladder, if you like. So go back to The Voice. So uh, you, you're to be executive producer of The Voice. Yeah. Do you remember how you felt when that was first communicated to you? Yeah, I mean, actually, I, I, there was, yes, I can remember that, how that's communicated. But it, funnily enough, it was at the same time as it was also talked about that I'll be executive producer of Strictly Come Dancing. So at the same time? Was, yeah, and it's because I'd been an exec producer on Strictly and she was going to go across and do The Voice. But she couldn't start until the sort of live shows. And with the voice, it was mainly about the turning, you know, the first bit, the turning chairs and the battles, you know. So I started it and I started that, you know, doing the that, that side of it, the blinds and the, the battles. And then I swapped and became executive producer of Strictly, which was just starting up. And she came across and took over the lives of the voice. So it was a conversation about both those brands, which was incredible. So, yeah, the point where... I got the call about Strictly as well. I do remember thinking, I remember thinking, 
that's weird because I vaguely hung that on my line. And I think you, I don't think I ever sat down and went, right, this is my career plan. I don't know who does, but maybe, maybe some of the kids do these days. They're smarter, I think, but about stuff like that. But I definitely didn't. And um, I just wanted to, I suppose, work on shows that I liked and thought were good and worthy and people were going to watch and you know enjoy. But I do remember thinking when I got the call about Strictly in particular, thinking, oh, that's interesting, because I did sort of about a year ago think, wouldn't it be brilliant? Imagine getting the call to exec Strictly. And I, and I thought to myself, ah, oh, some subconsciously I've hung that on my line. I almost see like you've got this sort of line in front of you. And so sometimes you subconsciously hang things on a, a line at, in, on your path. And you don't even maybe realise that you're then slightly subconsciously moving, manoeuvring yourself in that direction even if you're not all out going for like, how do I get myself this job? You know, which I never did have those thoughts. I just thought I've hung that there in the future as something I want to happen. And I just thought, oh, something about me doing that has, ma- has manifested this. That's sort of how I remember having, that's the feeling I had when I got the call about Strictly. How, how far into the Strictly life cycle were we at that point? I'm trying to remember. Uh, so, what... Yeah, so it started in 2004. Right, and it was okay. a sort of more old fashioned looking come dancing set. That's where it came from. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, I came in from when it became much more entertainment and went much more. I mean, it was still Bruce Forsyth presenting it. It was 2012. Because it strikes me that one of the questions that I had, which I'd lead into, is is kind of, you know, is there a, I'm slightly jumping the gun here, but the sort of secret source, the magic ingredients when you look at a show and you think, actually, do you know what? We're onto something here. It struck me if you go back to 2004, I'm guessing again, trying to get my orders, my my mind set back to that time. But you know, we were starting to see a lot more. To your point, reality TV and those sorts of things yeah. coming into play. But the idea of of variety around light entertainment. If I look back to my childhood, you know, you the only real dancing on TV would have been, as I recall, Strictly Come Dancing, or you might have seen. You know, my grandparents were avid Morecambe and Wise fans. I remember yeah. sitting in their house on a Saturday tea time or Saturday evening watching Eric and Ernie, they might throw a little bit of dancing in at some point to the end. But to actually then build a whole show around dancing, which for a long time felt like something that perhaps an older generation might engage in, certainly wouldn't have been considered mainstream, and yet clearly is something that so many people have gotten involved. And the show has been an enormous success. It strikes me it would have been a brave move I would imagine for somebody at the BBC at that time to sit down and go right we've got an idea for a show we think it could you know it could be transformative it arguably has but it must is there a secret source do you look at these things as a producer and think yeah this is the one this is really going to fly I don't think anybody ever really does that I think occasionally you might you know if you've done a pilot and everybody gets really excited about it, you know, and everyone's sort of wide-eyed and, and fizzing about it. You think, oh, God, we're on something here. Most of the time it's potluck, you know. I mean, I, you know, even things like Big Brother, I think, you know, it was it, those certain those shows that everyone thinks, oh, did everybody know? Like, not really. Just someone's brave enough. A commissioner is brave enough to give it a go. And I do know a good story about that, actually. I do know that the BBC, the development team at the time, someone called Karen Smith, who's, who's brilliant, I've known for a long time in the industry was running the development team and uh, it's quite it's different actually it's quite a different set skill set you get a development team and you get production teams and they're not necessarily the same people in tv so the people that sit there coming up with ideas are they not necessarily the people that go on to make them it's a different mindset and skill set interestingly but um 
I remember they, I know they had the meeting with the head of uh, BBC One, I think, or the entertainment head at BBC One. And in order to help sell the idea, they got some Latin dancers in the middle of the meeting to come in and start dancing around the room to, to, in order to sort of, you know, make a splash and, and convince them that this was something that, you know, they should give it a go. So, um, yeah, that's, that's that's one of the reasons I think that they they went, okay, let's give this a go. But it is, it's always, you know, within instincts, experience, you know, as, as much as you can. But mainly with those things, it's, it's it's sort of let's give this a go and see what happens. And you put everything into it. You put out your first series and you sort of wait and hope, really. What, what did you enjoy about the Strictly experience? I love the, I mean, the, the sort of, I suppose the, creativity of it the I know what I love the most it's like the world building and what you feel like you're, you feel like people are they can leave the week behind and you're pulled into this I suppose it is a world really of just color and you know fabric whirling in front of your face and dance and people's you know you're sort of drawn in by the music and the love that people that are doing it have got because they all get into it and love it so much because it's such a sort of constant serotonin buzz so they're all just absolutely loving it so then that becomes quite everyone becomes quite quickly bonded so celebrities are bonded the dancers are bonded it's generally a very it's a very positive vibe that comes out of that show and genuinely it is a, a positive vibe and the judges are there's not much there was very little in terms of producing you know in terms of it, would, it was true as to, to what it really is you know whereas I went into it thinking I'd heard some of the stories about X Factor and seen, you know, that there's a lot of producing goes on and there's this and there's that to sort of slightly manipulate it and make it more tabloidy. And and there just wasn't that with Strictly, really. And I think that's why it's stayed so true to itself that whatever it is now, 20, you know, whatever it is, 17 years on, it's still doing so well and still on TV, where some of those other brands are sort of taking a break. Um do you, do you think it's because of that authenticity? Yeah. Because to my point, I mean, clearly I was I was going to say you can't make someone appear a better dancer i guess there's an argument that says you can coach and train somebody to be a better dancer Absolutely, but yeah. on a screen you dance how you dance right so there isn't that sense you can't you can't polish it in no, that respect no, 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 you can't no, no. make someone look better and that authenticity resonates it's very human definitely yeah. and i think that came through that comes through the celebrities the dancers the judges very much so is that yeah it's it, it is what it is and um people develop a real love for it and it's that love and that sort of excitement and yeah and that, you know and, the, and going out there and yeah the, I suppose for me it was the I, I just started at the time where we'd started building concepts around it so in the early days it really was just come dancing and it was a set set and there was one color or two colors and some outfits whereas what happened when we would started there was it became much more about story and it became much more about, you know, creating an entire concept that this was going to be set in Paris and the screens would be Paris and the outfit would say that and everything about the projection would be that. And the story was, you know, the props would be there and the, you know, colour and outfits and everything. So it was all elements that were sort of building the world. Like I said, I think those things that just sort of pull you in and are and the world. But I, I think what becomes certainly in terms of BBC, and this might be quite a quintessentially British thing, is that... When an audience like that, and I've seen it on Strictly, I've seen it on the one show to a certain extent, and I think there are very few in certain brands that if an audience get in there early and they feel they're part of the success of growing that, they sort of feel like they own a piece of it and then the loyalty is fierce. And I, I feel like that about Strictly. I felt like that older generation probably felt that like there wasn't much for them back 
then, you know, I'm talking over 50s, but they're not exactly older, but that's probably over 55s maybe in the earlier days. They really felt for the first time something had come to as a big Saturday night razzle-dazzle show for them. And the kind of, I suppose there was a sense of sort of like gratitude in that and a, uh, and then a love for that show. And as I say, the, the, the loyalty it instills is just, that's the recipe for success. And and it it strikes me, and this and this isn't based on any factual evidence, just anecdotally from what I hear and see and have experienced. But it strikes me that it transcends generations. Mm. So it would be you know whole families would sit down from you know your your, your five year old to your grandmother yep. would sit in front of a screen on a Saturday evening and watch Strictly. Yeah, and that's it, what it, it is. Actually, yeah. encaptured it's become woven into a nation into the nation's fabric. Yeah. arguably, is is that something that you'd seen? internationally as well i would imagine that's not uniquely british it, it it transcends nations as much as it does generations yeah totally i think it's um yeah i think it's sold to over 60 countries in the end strictly and, and still going at many it's called dancing with the stars in a lot of places it's still going in the states and, and all over the world but yeah i think the sort of i think the, the, the dance the struggle to learn that dance the relationship between dancer and dancer the music you know, the entertainment bought by the panel, all those things are, are, you know, when thrown into the same pot. And there's a lot of joy, I think, in that show. There's a lot of positivity. No one was being put down. And if it was, it was done in a sort of pantomime way. And, you know, I suppose that's because it's sort of celeb to celeb in a way. If we take a, you know, choreographer Hallward to, you know, I don't know, Jerry Hall, whatever, you know, there's a, there's a banter that they can get on a level with. So I think there's a, there's a, purity and a positivity more in that than there is potentially in I mean obviously it was very successful for a long time that um all the you know brilliant music shows that were on the other side but I think where potentially in the end it fell out of favor slightly with the audiences were when you know sort of the likes of Simon Cowell who I think is brilliant by the way but um taking people down and uh you know sort of talking to there he was multi-millionaire Simon sort of putting down some 18 year old who'd come and sort of sung their heart out and I think in the end, that's slightly, we, we went into a world of being a little bit more positive and touchy-feely. And I think that resonated with Strictly and, and a lot of the more woke generation, you know, I'm not sure I like that word, but, you know, the whole woke thing. I, I think it was out of kilter, let's say, that kind of mean thing that came with potentially some of the shows that haven't lasted the test of time like Strictly has. I also think that we, we many of us, again, I'm full of those broad sweeping statements today, but they, we identify with the underdog in Strictly as well in that regard. The fact that, you know, there's, there's the thing that struck me about Strictly is it connects with us on a human level that we all would acknowledge. You know, there are, it covers the range of talents, you know, yeah. from, from the people who might consider, there's not one of us that at some point in our life hasn't had a dance, even if it's in the privacy of our own, yes. you know, our own bedroom, Completely. whether or not other people have seen us do it. We all think we might. So you've got the people that think, goodness me, I'm born with, with two left feet or two right feet yeah. versus the person who thinks I've got some moves. I know yeah. I've got oh, some yeah. moves. Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually we've, yeah. all, we've all, you know, so I think therefore there's right the way through the Strictly journey, there's, there's, we can all identify with someone who's part of the show that go, yeah, I'm kind of a bit like that. Yeah. Or I think <laughs> yeah. I, I think I could get there yes. or I'm that one. And even the one that really can't dance, then the audience ends up kind of, you know, maybe that again, not uniquely British, but we love an underdog, don't yeah, we? So totally. we'll look at the one that can't, and that also works. You know, they don't all have to be superstars. The one that's just giving it a go, yeah, exactly. We'll all get behind that person as well, and I think we—it's why why it works. Yeah, so. it is, yeah, because I think that sentiment of you know whatever we do in life, even if you're particular, you excel at one thing, you don't excel at everything. So we've all effectively been an underdog, haven't we? Whether it's like 
when you're in the cross-country team at school or, you know, whatever, whatever, any area, you can either be brilliant at it if that's what you're good at or you're an underdog. So again, you're right. It's sort of being able to feel like you understand how that feels. But I think that you raised a good point there about why I think some shows are successful, particularly successful. And I think it's that visceral nature of things that we understand and we've all had a go at. So strictly, yes, we've all had a go at dancing, whether it's at a wedding or whether you're, you know, think you're some professional, we all know how it feels to move your body. Same with singing, really. And it's why those two things really are, tend to be the same churn of subject matter that end up on those big shows that I know people complain about well it's something else other than singing and dancing but there aren't that many subject matters actually that enough people can connect to particularly for a Saturday night when it's very much about entertainment and performance and you know what that's what you go and do on a Saturday night wouldn't you go to a concert or you used to be able to do such things so you know I think that's that's one of the reasons and I, the reason I really believe that say Bake Off is the phenomenal success that it is is because we all know how it feels again it's that visceral nature we know how it feels to do that and I've worked on shows like when I was a commissioning editor at Sky I commissioned this thing called Project Catwalk which was a spin-off of a very successful American brand called Project Runway and it was basically fashion designer idol and it did very well with a certain ABC One young funky you know grazia reading audience you're never going to make that kind of show. And I'd say even the same with like sort of Sewing Bee or Great Pottery Throwdown or a lot of these competition formats, Make Up, Idle, Glow Up. You know, there's loads of it, isn't there? TV's just gone for it. You know, take a subject matter and you make it a competition format. But the ones that really resonate on a, on, a, on a huge scale and last the test of time are the ones where we understand how it feels, you know. And so when you're, say, for something like that Project Catwalk I mentioned, we don't know how it feels to be a designer. You don't know what it feels like to sit there and, and design a skirt. So when you then sort of watch the parade of skirts that say at the end of that show, I don't feel equipped to judge it in the same way that you would at something you've had a go with, you know. And we all know the terrible, disastrous, you know, minion cake we've probably made for our kids as opposed to the incredible... Uh, creations there they're making but again it's still those same principles of having a go underdog one people that are brilliant goes well some weeks doesn't go well the other week so it's still all those sort of life you know the life stuff that we're all dealing with on a daily basis I guess is what it somehow scoops up in a, in a format but yeah that that visceral nature of things is is big I think in terms of success so you won a BAFTA for your work with with Strictly, congratulations. Yes, yeah. But how did that feel? I, I guess, slightly, let me ask a different question. What does success mean to you? I guess, because we look at measures of success in terms of a badge that it's afforded to someone, that strikes me as something, you know, that's a huge accolade. Uh, it's a big deal. But what does success mean to you? Uh, well, I, I, I've got maybe an unusual take on all of that. So I think it's, it's absolutely fantastic to be recognised by your peers. And that's very flattering. And that's a lovely thing. What I do slightly take umbrage with him with my own industry is I think, oh, God, really, we've already got quite privileged lives. We're doing a really fantastic job. Do we really have to keep having all these award ceremonies where we pat ourselves on the back? And then because we're in TV, we film them and make people watch us patting ourselves on the back. And I think, <laughs> I honestly think, what are we doing? Not to say I haven't turned up and enjoyed the free wine and have some fun. But I honestly do think, why are we, we shouldn't, I, I don't think we need, I think we're already quite privileged and I, I don't think we need to sort of keep patting ourselves. So, well, it's fine to do it, but I don't think we need to keep filming it and putting it on television for everyone else to watch us patting ourselves on the back. I don't, I don't really think that's what we should be doing. So I suppose success, um, 
for me, it's not, it's, it's lovely for, you know, to, to win those, if you get those awards, but it, it's not, it's definitely not something that I sort of have got my sights on. You know, people joke sometimes about, oh, that'll be the BAFTA or things like that. And I just think, I don't even think like that to make that joke. I just doesn't even, you know, so I suppose it's more, um, for me at this point, it's now creating a production company where we are, uh, we have developed, produced and put out formats that are, when it's entertainment, uh, really entertaining for me, really helping people escape from the world sort of, you know, just delve into something that they can switch off from everything else for an hour or whatever. And that you're really proud of something that you threw everything in, you threw everything in creatively. And it was a successful format that people loved. That for me, and then it's, you know, and if that goes on to sell around the world, that's when, that's where you make your money in television. So that's happy days. But um, yeah, that, that, that for me probably is what, um, and I, you know, even I, my husband will sort of say something about, the lottery or buying a lottery ticket or something and I think oh, I don't even want a lottery ticket because I I need to I need to make this company work and I need to earn my own money I don't want to even always win the lottery <laughs> that's a weird thing to say but um because I, I need to c- c- sort of yeah, continue to use up this drive to make this company the success that I I believe I can make it you know and this is Morris Morris TV yes this is, is Morris right? TV yes yeah. so, you, so you, you set up am I right in thinking you set up Morris TV in 2019 with yeah. modest management is that so what, yeah. what was that what was the inspiration the story where did where did the idea stem from and 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 i guess too many questions in one i apologize never a good premise but nonetheless i guess i'm interested to understand what the you know from concept to launch what the journey was to get modest tv off the ground and perhaps we can talk about how things have evolved from there yeah so basically when i i sort of been an exec producer for quite a few years on some of those big shows and I, I turned down, you know, I can remember my mother said, how could you sort of turn down execing Strictly? Well, I said, because I feel like I've done it enough now that I've pushed all the content in, you know, it's been successful and I need to move on and do something else. And so what happened pre-Modest TV was I was approached by a company in China, quite a, production, quite a successful production company in China called 3C Media. And um, it wasn't on my, I hadn't hung it on my line at all to... Um, to start a production company. And um, they came to me, I think it's 2015, and said, you know, would you like to start your own production company you know, that we would fund and, you know, you come up with formats. And I sort of said, no, I don't know. That's not what I wanted to know. I don't want to do that, I don't think. <laughs> so I went away. My children were still quite little and I thought that sounds like a heck of a lot of work and perhaps something I'm not in the right place to do at the moment. And then they came back again and sort of said, are you sure? And, as, and it was around the time in television, around sort of beginning 2015, 2016, lots of the big conglomerates, I suppose, in television, the big sort of distribution companies were starting to come to execs that had got to a certain level and saying, would you like to start your own production company? You know, we'll get you started and all those sort of deals that you make. And it was becoming a bit of a thing. So I remember thinking, and then suddenly the, the, the production in China became massive. So everyone was saying, oh my God, China's the next place. They're chucking money at people left, right and centre for formats. It's the big thing. They're eating it up. They've got the voice. They've gone mad for the voice. And, you know, it's all happening. So I think I took about five, six months. And then I decided I'd say yes. And I thought, actually, I'd, maybe I will. I'll, I'll do this. I'll just give it a go. You know, I'll, I'll just give it a go. And now I do look at that and think, you know, that probably was... Um, stupid slash brave um, because I didn't have any experience at doing that. I just didn't have an experience. And I just thought, I'll I'll do this. I'll give it a go. But the silly thing was that I didn't, what I should have done is gone to someone that had helped put the infrastructure in. Because they were in China, 
even though they were obviously funding it. I did absolutely everything. And I stupidly got sort of a really cheap office where I even had to bring the Wi-Fi in. And I had to do absolutely everything by every last paperclip, you know, do do everything to bring this company together. And then we were probably, you know, really in entertainment, you need a good two years, if not two and a half years, because it's all or nothing. So you've either got, you know, pretty much nothing or you've got the £10 million commission, which is what happened when we eventually got the search in, in uh, 2019. But you've got to work for a long time and you're relentlessly working. It's a business of 99% no's. So you're sitting there in development, which when you're a producer, you don't really enjoy for development because I hate the hours of talking about something that's probably never going to happen. <laughs> so I'm really impatient and a real nightmare for development people. But we had a fairly small team. There's myself and a head of development and a development AP. And um, we were working away and you go out there pitching your wares to ITV, to BBC, you know, and my mistake, I think, was thinking, right, you go wide. So I'd done some daytime producing. I'd done some factual entertainment shows like, you know, the sort of, like I mentioned, the Project Catwalk, those kinds of shows. And I'd done entertainment. So I sort of came up with loads of different stuff and pitched into far too many places. And but again, I had no one really to learn from. I hadn't really done that or even been out in a production company pitching away. So I was just literally making up a song along. So we just got to the point where things were starting to look quite good and potentially getting commissions. And we, the, the company that was um, funding me in China, just stopped funding me. And I, I don't know what the scenario was and why it was. And, and I've, I've got completely various sort of theories, but um, there was no warning. And so the money just stopped coming one month. <laughs> so it was an amazing learning curve. And I, I just wouldn't. People said, oh, God, what a nightmare, because it cost me a lot of money. And, you know, I didn't get paid for a long time. and blah, blah. But I wouldn't change it for the world, because that I just I could make, I made loads of mistakes and got What, what do you think you learned from that experience? Uh, I learned that, uh, I learned the way to, to develop. And I learned the way that you don't pitch scattergun. Actually, I think I was too scared to think, right, I need two or three really big supporters here and we should put all our attention into that and those commissioners will be the ones that give us the work because we completely build into the report all the time and I didn't I went out to about 15 different commissioners and uh you know try to sort of please everybody and actually then you're not really developing good enough relationships with anybody so I, I learned to not scattergun it in, in that way and uh, I learned how to run a business I learned you know sort of profit and loss and all the things that when you're running around producing sort of things like Strictly, you've obviously got a team and you're managing a massive budget, but that's with a whole team that were doing that. I was doing absolutely everything. So in terms of what all the elements that need to be brought together to run a business, the hiring, the content, all the legal stuff, just loads more contract stuff than I never would normally have done because create a bigger organization, you've got those business affairs departments that deal with all that, you know. So all those things, we normally have all these big departments. I'm sure anyone who starts a business would say this. You know, it's, that's it. It's, it's you, really. So you learn very quickly. And I, le- I learned as well that I probably that you, I, I allowed us to spend too long developing shows that didn't have enough of an interest from a broadcaster. You know, so you just are now now that you don't, you know, you, if you go in and there's no interest or they're not even going to throw you a little bit of money, even five grand or something to start developing something, they're probably not interested. So don't go away and spend loads of time working because they've shown a vague interest in this thing. Because the chances of getting commissions are pretty slim. I mean, it is I, I, my, our business is literally, I'd say, a business of of everything that gets developed and pitched to actually what makes it to air. It's probably it's between ninety five and ninety seven percent no's. But it's back to one hundred and fifty letters. Yeah, like sitting <laughs> yeah. down, penning one hundred and fifty letters. 
and knowing that you're going to get 149 or 148 no's. But actually that as a, as a kind of precursor to your career to then go into an industry. I think the thing that strikes me, the old, I can't remember the specific story, but the analogy of, you know, kind of stopping three feet from gold. Yes. But that actually there must, there also, is there not that little nagging sense at the back of you that maybe, just maybe, this concept we've developed could fly? And actually the next conversation, you've got to have that. So you get caught between knowing at what point do you pull the plug? Yeah. At what point do you say enough? Yeah, that yeah. must be incredibly hard. Yeah, it to is. Make that kind, even, even respectfully with the wealth of experience you enjoy within the industry, to know when to stop must of itself be be very challenging. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think a lot of the time it's just sort of, yeah, it's because you're, you know, in an ideal world, you want to be in a situation where you're ringing a commissioner up every five minutes and saying, what about this and what about this? And they do say, or just send me one line. Don't spend ages developing a PowerPoint and this, that and the other. But that's not really the case. You know, if you've got a meeting, there is an expectation of the way you present yourself. You know, you go in with a, you might have cut a little sizzle tape, as they call them, a one minute thing to show kind of what this concept could be. And then someone's worked up a document and then you've worked up lots of different format point ideas within that idea. And you sort of got to get to that point before you can even have a conversation. So, well, I guess you've got to create some theatre around it. Yeah. I, you know, going back to your earlier point about you know the, uh, the 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 creation of Strictly, if you like, as a concept. You know, if they hadn't have brought those dancers in the room and someone had just said we're going to do a Saturday night dance show, it would have been yeah. obviously a lot, more, a lot more specific than that. But you know, we're going to we're going to do a Saturday night dancing show. Uh, hmm, that's, yeah. Get some dancers in a room. Get people all the color and the the that comes the with that and the theater that comes with that and the excitement of it. You create something. Yeah. So there is a. I can understand how that would be incredibly challenging when someone does say, "Just drop me a line." I mean, the other thing that um it, that I'd say I'd really learned was that it's, what you realize is really it's all about talent. So if you it became more and more like that in terms, of, especially when you know the sort of Netflix and all and Amazon and all these other Apple and all these other places now that are places that buy content, but they were a big competition for the terrestrials. You know, it's a huge time of change in my industry uh, in the last few years. And um, I think it was at that point that, you, you know, you realise that if you haven't got big talent that can stand out on a billboard, on an EPG, you know, on the Netflix, if it's a Netflix type, you know, that picture there of that talent that people want to know. And increasingly people will just throw the names into it, won't they? You know, I noticed like sort of the something that got 5 million viewers was because they called it Gordon, Gino and Fred's, adventures or whatever you know and that's what they do you know you've got to find a way now in this massive field of content you know youtube and instagram that all the social media which is huge as well if you so so sort of a nice format that might have made it you know years ago like 10 years younger or super nanny for instance you know 20 years ago with talent that you don't know who they are I don't know if that would have flown today i think people would be like no who's the big celebrity talent so it's all about you know like we've got a production company we own 50% with Ollie Mers and you know it focuses us to a certain extent when we're working on stuff for Ollie but it's it's you know you know that Ollie's your your key really do they want a show with Ollie Ollie's got you know big fan base is known by a lot of people so he is a real calling card because people recognize him they sort of know what he stands for it's probably going to be entertaining performance based you know and so just his face alone stands for that so that's what that's what I realized is there a risk that that the way the market has evolved is that rips some of the innovation out of the space, the creativity, because you go, I'm not suggesting that somebody like Ollie Merce doesn't have a lot of talent to offer the market, but actually 
equally there may well be a, a you know a bright shiny person somewhere with all the talent all the capability just not yet had the break yeah and totally actually yeah. was going to take someone of, to be really brave and back them and let them fly but the, the the market doesn't support that anymore because you've got to have a big face on a billboard that everybody recognizes yeah totally you know there, there's been a big um conversation loads of conversation about that over the last sort of decade in my industry and one of the big things has been so bbc3 so BBC Three was a huge place for um, new, breaking new talent. I mean, absolutely huge. List is, is is massive, and that was the point that went online. I think it was six, seven years ago now uh, to be a digital channel only. That was a big, big loss. But even in you know, in terms of you know, when we were you know in the twenties or whatever, and you had things like T Four, and you had all the MTV stuff, and whatever. That was a real training ground for presenters, particularly in the live stuff that I do. And actually, there is this always this sentiment that when you you've got a show or you've got a commissioner you know a new new series or any series and you and you have to say right who's who is presenting this or where where are we at or you're developing something who are we going to put as, as the presenter of this the pool is quite small because there's only a certain amount of people that have got the level of experience they need and that pool is sort of smaller and getting older so then there's but there was this sort of you know period where we were saying well are there all these youtube stars who were coming through we're talk- probably talking more like eight nine years ago now to eight seven eight nine years ago are they going to be the next big talent but then there was this quite a big issue in television where lots of pilots were made and maybe with some of the smaller channels like uk tv and some of those people gave those people a chance and then you know the zoellas of this world and those kinds of people and then what you realized was that their presenting style of bedroom presenter effectively just wasn't big enough and it was too everyday chat not not big enough not starry enough not shiny enough not experienced and out there enough and so that wasn't going to be a solution you know the youtube talent was probably not going to make the leap i don't even think i can think now of any youtube talent that's made the leap to sort of having their own show so do you you think that's a mechanism of the mechanism of delivery do you think we have an expectation that you know i watch youtube on my phone on my iPad as a you know a smaller but but on a big screen my expectation is big glossy yeah. high you know high production content that kind of wows me in that respect yeah I think uh, so it's yeah. more more of an experience arguably in many ways yeah and I think it's the environment so I think if you're just sort of in someone's background is their bedroom or their lounge the expectation is it can all be very relaxed and and chatty and you know it's, it's sort of just what you'd expect if you'd make the sitting around on your bed having a chat with you. But that vibe can't be what jumps into a studio environment when you're in a studio. Exactly, and there's ten cameras, and you know there's an expectation of the level of your energy and your performance and your theatre and your everything else. Yeah, and I think the very relaxed bedroom vibe didn't translate in many cases. Live TV must be enormously stressful. So, so how do you cope? Yeah, it, it's it, the gallery. So the gallery, which is where the you know there's all, there's all the cameras there, and you've got the director, the vision mixer, the commissioning editor, the exec, the series producer that's talking into the ear of the talent has to be very calm. And even when you know potentially all is kicking off, or people are kind of you know running about outside trying to sort things out, that has to be very calm because that's the absolute kind of epicenter of of what you're of, of running the show. And so there's a lot of adrenaline and there's a lot of adrenaline on the day. There's a lot of adrenaline that keeps everybody going on, on the day. And I mean, I suppose it's, it's, it's also a real, um, 
what the reason some of those big shows that are very good just keep getting better and better is because they just keep refining their processes. So, you know, they've got everything down from the way the week works and what happens on a Monday morning, Monday afternoon, a Tuesday morning, Tuesday, when the script read happens, when, you know, the best writers, all those things are just sort of built up and trust is built in and best practice is built in, I suppose. So that actually they run like clockwork. I mean, they run like absolute clockwork. You've got 200 people, everybody knows their role. In a way, you could say you sort of uh, you learn less on those shows in terms of the fact that you do probably just have your kind of quite your role and you know what your role is. You know, when I first went into TV and you work on a music show and there's three of you, you know, I was doing everything from auto cue to sort of helping floor manage to script writing to I would go and do the off camera interviews with Beyonce and Noel Gallagher and stuff, you know, because we couldn't afford the presenter to go and do it. And I would be doing it, you know, without my voice um, or me being seen on screen. So I learned loads on those shows, actually, whereas you, I looked at some of the, you know, the, the team on the, and the APs and producers on that. And I thought, God, you're actually doing less on this massive show and your CV looks more impressive because of this massive show. But actually, you're doing less and learning less than I would have done on those shows when I was your age that you wouldn't really have, you never remember the name of, you know. So, yeah, I, I've got slightly distracted myself saying with saying that, but. So how did you found, how have you found the transition from the likes of Sky and BBC and the infrastructure and support and network that that would afford you to then running your own company? Because I think that's an interesting, for many people, perhaps who are, you know, working for big corporate PLC right now and are thinking about, hey, this is, I'm going to go off my own. The, the thought of not even having considered they might have to buy the paper clips and put the Wi-Fi in, yeah. <laughs> you know, those, that sort of yeah. journey, it's a, it's a big eye-opener. You know, we take for granted so much of the infrastructure and support we have around us. How have you found that transition from 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 corporate world to to your own your own shop? Well, I mean, initially, sort of, I say hard because I made it particularly hard for myself. I think I could have probably gone found a halfway house in terms of someone that might have put some of that infrastructure in for you. Whilst, but I, I yeah, went for the initially with the, the Chinese backer everything, and so the things I found sort of harder were yeah, like the sort of business affairs side of it and thinking have I got the best lawyer here? Like, is, am I, am I, is this okay? Have I, have I got the right person? Because I haven't got anyone else to go to here to check that this contract is right and we're covered here. So in terms of just sort of, and, you know, opening a bank account, you know, and going, well, do I go with Coots or do I go with this other, these other people or, you know, and so all those, all those things that were the, the infrastructure stuff initially just took a lot of time. So I suppose what they did, if you're starting a business and, you put yourself in a position where you've got to do all that. It does take your attention and time away from the core subject of whatever your business is. So yes, in the time that I was spent doing all those things, finding accountants, opening bank accounts, ordering stationery, and you know, yeah, doing legal stuff. That was time I wasn't I wasn't spending. I guess driving the team to come up with more ideas or coming up with ideas myself or spending time on the creativity of it. So um, it's sort of just being aware I suppose that that's the parameters of it and setting your structure up if you can that at least then you've got somebody else who's fully on whatever your main subject matter is which for me was at that time coming up with ideas that you are sellable and making sure you've got the structure to do that or either that or you're working long hours I mean they work ridiculously long hours anyway tv just is long hours it always has been probably you know always will be but I wouldn't I wouldn't change it so there was no point where I think because uh, I because I had this sort of I tell you what I did I remember thinking you know, when, shall I do this? And, and can I do this? And even when we landed our massive commission um, at the end of 2019, where we went from two of us to 40 of us in the space of, you know, a couple of weeks, I remember thinking, 
yes, you go, you do have the infrastructure at BBC. Yes, you've got public, you know, the public affairs, the uh, business affairs department and legal and HR and what have you. But actually, what I was thinking, even with Strictly, you know, I started on day one. You know, you open your phone to find your contacts. You hire your entire team from the production manager, probably to the accountant, to producers, writers. You know, you're doing all of that. And you're still generating the, uh, and I was thinking, yeah, okay, in-house, you've got your in-house lawyers and you've got your in-house finance people. And obviously you've got to go and find those people and find people you trust and that can be hit and miss at first. But once you do, although you're this smaller setup, you are, you're operating like one of those big companies, but you've got all the freedoms of not being within some of the structures of those big companies that actually drive you mad. And some of the hierarchy that I find very wasteful in terms of time, energy, you know, all those things, particularly, I suppose, at the BBC, although I do love the BBC. I think it's a great institution. But, um, yeah, I, I think um, I, I wouldn't change it. So what do you hope to achieve with Modest TV? I would like to be in a position where we've sort of developed, where we've, we've got, you know, let's say, Three or four big formats, a big entertainment formats, perhaps one in 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 uh, entertainment and one in performance, one in there's a game show, you know, a big uh, but but those sort of big juggernauts, I suppose, that are the, the the preserve of Saturday night telly on either BBC, ITV, Netflix. The big thing is, I mean, that's we I spend increasingly a lot more of my time now pitching to the SVODs as we call them, so Netflix and Amazon and even sort of Disney Plus. I've had conversations with in the states. So it, it's um, it's building a company, I suppose, and I might, in my head it's, it's 10 years, of which we're two and a half years into it, maybe less, maybe it's seven, but um, where you have um, developed global formats that are worthy of those, those big Saturday night slots and those big, those big shows that get the big budgets and therefore can be really exciting and thrilling and, and made properly on, on the likes of Netflix and Amazon. So if you look back to, you know, what advice would you give 21 year old Andrew Hamilton I think I'd I think I would I, I would do what I'd, I think I've touched on it at the start but the biggest piece of advice would be to stay a little bit longer on each level do a little bit longer on runner have a look around at runner level do 360 on the on each level be able to take more researcher jobs so that you get a bigger breadth across a more impressive list of shows and you understand more about what is required of a, a researcher at each level and up to AP and producer and I think is that once you get past producer level, it's definitely harder to then, uh, or certainly series producer, make up any gaps that you might have missed. You know, so if you'd really done your time more rather than always taking the jump up that you were given, you'd have felt more solid earlier on rather than sort of being slightly late and having to absorb stuff late. So who or what inspires you? People that inspire me are people that really are passionate about what they do. And that's probably such a classic answer. But I don't think it matters whether it's like, you know, a new sort of, you know, way a new armchair looks or, a you know, a new type of bread or a, I don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter sort of for me what it actually is. You know, there's no kudos into having something that seems more loved by the public or more famous with you know in terms of, of of its its standing it's more people that absolutely love and will do complete 360 love of the thing that they're trying to make work and they're really passionate about it so if it's not the subject matter if it's not the thing they're selling the actual process of selling they love you know so it, not, it doesn't have to be the even as i say the basics 
the basics of what you're selling. It can be the process of selling that you love and that's what you love and you're so passionate about that that you're just really, really good at it and you're committed and you won't stop until you've made it a success. So I think it's those people that I, I find most inspiring. Is there anyone particularly that stands out for you? I guess, who do you admire? I admire Oprah Winfrey because I think she's been incredible in television. I think she's a comes from a good place. I think she's a good soul and she's doing the right thing by a lot of them. Um, I'm very sort of into, um, like I love the book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. So I'm way more um, impressed by, I'd be more excited about meeting Eckhart Tolle than I would about meeting Tom Cruise, to be honest. And it's it's people that are trying to sort of do the right thing by uh, making the world, no, making the world, I suppose, a terrible way to put it, but just a a force for good and a force for change and that whole be the change you want to see thing that I think comes with, yeah, the likes of uh, sort of, uh, I suppose, Deepak Chopra, Eckhart Tolle, people like April Winfrey. It's those people that, I don't, you know, it's the companies now that actually I see are, you know, really so delighted to see that there's companies that every, you know, 10p from every sale goes to, you know, a project in Cambodia or water project for, you know, the the Sudan or whatever it is. I think those things where companies are starting to get really savvy. And I really don't like the word woke because I think it's been used and turned back on people um, in a quite a negative way. It's always been used as an insult, hasn't it? exactly. So I... Uh, yeah the whole I'm not sure that's not it's a derogatory term and and it ought ought not to be no it ought not to be because it was coming from the right place and that's the problem I think these are people arguably who are enlightened yeah you know we might say rather than using woke as a term yeah and actually exactly and conscious I'd sort of say conscious actually being conscious of what the way you're behaving the way you're treating people what you're expecting people and the impact you're having with what you're doing you know can you can you be slightly lighter on the planet and and your resource with what you're doing but plant more good and it's people that are doing that whether that's companies or you know whatever level and I've got a, I've got a really sort of positive feeling that the under 18s are, have got a very high proportion of people that are, are coming from a really good conscious light place and I think they're going to save the world <laughs> fantastic fantastic so where can we find you? People that want to reach out, people that want to know more about Modest TV, um, you're online, I guess. Where can they find out more? Um, so, so the website is modesttv.com. I mean, it's more business to business, I suppose, because we are we are yeah. a small niche market. But um, that's where we are. If we've ever got sort of jobs um, out there, we use something called the talent base to advertise jobs. We use um, something called people who people in TV who know people who work in TV it's called on Facebook <laughs> and that's where loads of the sort of jobs go out if you're looking for for, for a, a start in TV it's a really good place but yeah that's that's sort of the main entry points I suppose to to the company fantastic Andrea it's been a pleasure to speak with you uh, I've really enjoyed this um I think you have a you have a fascinating story it's a wonderful story and I'm sure I've no doubt there's, there's a lot more to come and uh, I shall look, uh, I look forward to the next time I, I switch on a set and see those titles rolling and see something that you will have been involved in. Oh. Um, I'm sure I know I will have been royally entertained as will, I'm, I've no doubt, many members of my household. So really appreciate you taking the time out to come and speak with me this afternoon. And uh, I wish you every success with, with Modest TV and everything that you've got going on. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, 
audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.